I was the same height I am now. So like very tall, really early. I had a terrible haircut. I had bad skin. I had never plucked my eyebrows or like did any like, it was just, I was a prepubescent 11 year old who was very awkward. Like a lot of people are like that. It wasn't exceptional, but I was shy on top of that. You're listening to Dear Seekers. I'm your host, Sasha Shell. You just heard Emily Ramshaw. If you know who Emily is, you probably wouldn't think she has anything to do with this 11-year-old preteen, who according to her is awkward, shy, has bad skin, and a weird haircut. So, how did Emily come out of her shell? What became the catalyst for her career? How did she land a job as the assistant fashion news editor at Flair magazine at only 22 years old? How did she end up joining the cover tour and being their senior editor a few years later and it became one of the core team members opening up their New York office? And how did she join forces as the Canadian content lead for Bumble? We will talk about all that. But besides Emily and I today, there is a third voice, Stevie. She's Emily's one-year-old puppy who couldn't help but being part of our conversation. If you want to meet Stevie, which I highly recommend because she's so cute, head to DearSeekers.com. Stevie, you're so friendly. It's <laughs> to strangers. <laughs> uh, let me just get a toy for her. Come here. Oh, now she's <laughs> settled. That's so cute. Okay. Okay. I'm recording now, but okay. I was in the lift. You know, the driver was so interesting because he was like, you know, I just recently read something that you should be smiling at yourself for five minutes every day. Really? It's really increasing your happiness level. And I was like, whoa, that's really interesting. Like in the mirror? Yeah. Oh. Have you heard about that? No. Have you done do I do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I smile at myself. <laughs> It's a funny thing to think about, but and say out loud. But I guess I do smile at myself in the mirror when I'm like done getting ready. It's like this is the face that I'm facing the world with today. So, but do you have like some sort of like internal conversation with yourself? Not really. It's funny because I am definitely one of those people who's like distracted by mirrors. Like if it's like in a corner and I can see myself, that's distracting. You know, like right. when like a child is constantly looking at themselves in a mirror. Have you ever seen like a four-year-old kid? No, it's always actually. like looking at themselves in the mirror. But what do you think they're looking at, though? Well, there's lots of cultural <laughs> theories about that, but I haven't thought about that since university. <laughs> because I don't think they care about what they look like. No, it's not. It's like recognizing yourself and right. like seeing yourself and your face and how it behaves. I think there's like a lot of fascination when we're kids. There's like a whole cultural psychological theories about that. Okay, I didn't anticipate we're going to start this interview like this. <laughs> But I just you can it. start wherever you want. But it is interesting if that actually makes you happier. Yeah. But I do wanted to maybe go back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were born in Toronto. I was born in Toronto. I grew up here, lived in the city. I grew up in the beaches, but lived in the cities my entire life, and left for university 
that was like the first time I lived somewhere else. I went to Miguel. We have Stevie here. Just yeah, this. Stevie's the panting voice. <laughs> the, the panting not is us. the dog, not us. Um, went to Miguel for university, so Montreal. That was the first time I lived outside of Toronto. And what did you study? I studied cultural studies, which mm. was a subcategory of their like English department. So it was essentially the way you would study English literature but you're studying pop culture. So it was a lot of like film studies and kind of image studies. And like I wrote a very academic essay about like a Dolce & Gabbana ad, like mm. that kind of thing. So and we like studied Destiny's Child videos. So it was really amazing. I loved it and I love the professors. It was a pretty unique program, but it was from like a very academic point of view, mm-hmm. essentially like criticizing culture, our culture, Western culture, not world culture. But um it was great. I also took my minors were American history and communications. So a super useful degree. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> not. Uh, not but why at all. did you choose that degree? Um, good question. Miguel didn't require us to declare a major until second year. So the first year, because of the Quebec system, is slightly different. Essentially, the first year, you just like try as many classes as you want. And I was in arts. I thought I would be in arts and science, but I ended up not wanting to do the science side and just do arts, which I don't know if that was a good idea or not, looking back on it. But I took like a whole range of things and ended up really liking the classes. Mm-hmm. I had loved English and I'd always loved reading. So that was like a given for me. I think it was kind of at the beginning of like cultural criticism on the internet when I was at school. And for me, university was like the first time when I met people who are interested in similar things as me and like talking about those in a serious way beyond kind of high school chatter, which right. was great for me. And I, I read somewhere you actually went to a all girls school. I did go to an all girls school. Where did you read that? <laughs> I don't even remember. Oh my god, that's I have in my note. Wow. Yeah, no, I went to an all girls high school from grade seven How to was grade that twelve. Experience? I was a very shy child. And all girls education is supposed to be, I think, according to my parents and studies, supposed to be good for women where you can allow your confidence to come out because you don't have you don't have boys to perform for. I don't know. I don't know if I believe that now because a lot of my closest friends are men. But but do you think that actually I, I think it helped. Mm-hmm. And also there was a huge focus on academics there, which was good for me because it was like cool to be smart. And when you're in high school, being cool really matters. So mm-hmm. I didn't have to like it was good to perform well. And I was like able to be the weirdo that I wanted to be. It was a little by the end of it, I was really ready to go. Like, I was ready to leave Toronto. I was ready to get out of my bubble. I wanted to just, like, be a person outside of an all-girls school. But I think it was probably good for me to, like, come out of my shell there. And it let me do that. It let me, like, I was in, like, drama (laughs) and musical theater. And, like, that was great for me. And I loved loved writing. I loved reading. Um, I think when I went to university, I kind of came into myself socially. Um, a lot of my interests developed in high school, but I became myself more as like a more outgoing person 
who felt like I could like be myself. I think when you're at an all girls school and everyone's in uniform and everyone is pretty similar, like everyone does everything. Everyone does intramural sports. Everyone Mm -hmm. does like participates in school activities. There's a sameness. Right. Which is probably good in a in an environment like that. But when I was in university, you know, there are so many people from all over the world who go to McGill who are interested in all sorts of different things and who have the freedom when you're outside of your comfort zone like that, you have the freedom to experiment with different things. And so you really like meet people who are actually like you and not just mm-hmm. forced together by an all girls school like right. you, you know? I've never been to an all-girls school and don't have any friends who did. So frankly, I don't have enough knowledge to form an opinion on it. But I am curious. So I asked Emily if she has a daughter now, would you send her to an all-girls school? Her response was, "Mm, I would. Although Emily admits that all-girls schools are not for everyone, she does see the benefits that could come out of it especially for herself, who was super shy growing up. It's actually interesting. I was talking to a girlfriend who also went to a different all-girls school about this the other day, how my career, I've actually largely been in all-female environments. Even my undergraduate degree was mostly women in my major. And then since then, I've worked in fashion and media and largely have been with all-female staff. I mean, there are men, but it's mostly women. And Mm -hmm. now, still, mostly women who I work with. So it's obviously my comfort zone. That said, like, I don't consider myself, like, I really love guys and I love, and I don't feel intimidated by them. I think part of the reason an all girls education can be good because guys aren't there at that, like, important stage of your life it kind of removes their, like, importance in terms of, like, I have to impress them or I have to, like, compete with them or I have to, like, even consider that, like, I'm not, maybe not as good as them or whatever kind of psychological, sociological lessons we learn from just, like, growing up Mm -hmm. as women. When it's all, when it's an all-female environment, it's just, like, all of that is taken away And it becomes like a very like pure learning environment for better or for worse. Do you have any idea of like what the path you might be taking or? I was all over the place. Both of my parents were in medicine. So that was kind of something that I thought maybe. But then by the time I got to university, I kind of lost all interest in that. And the idea then... And what I told my parents was that, okay, like, science and medicine isn't happening anymore, but I'll go to law school and, like, I'll be a lawyer. I don't think I was ever really that serious about it, although I did sign up for the LSAT in fourth year, and I got all the books to study and then never studied. So it was, like, something where I don't think I personally believed it, and I just told my family that I would do that. So I was pretty directionless, except that I knew what I liked. I liked culture. I liked reading. I liked criticism. I liked women's studies, all those things. 
and that's what I was interested in. But I didn't really know where that would lead me. Mm-hmm. I loved fashion, but I didn't think it was like a serious pursuit. At that time, I thought you needed to go to fashion school in order to be in fashion. So I like didn't I there was no end goal where I was like, that's what I'm going to be. I had this kind of like very vague notion that I would like someday be like someone in a suit or something, which is obviously not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Just this kind of like vague picture of myself being successful. But I had no idea what that would be and how that would actually come to be. And what what kind of women or particularly women you emulate when you were little? Maybe oh God, one when day, I was really little? Or at different stages Like I was always really attracted to like glamorous women. And, what do you mean by that? Um, so my grandma, my mom's mom who was in Toronto and who I was like very close with and saw a lot as a kid um, was like very glamorous or at least I saw her that way because she was like the one glamorous <laughs> woman in my family. Like my mom, I love her and she's the best and I'm probably more like her now is very casual in the way that she portrays herself. She doesn't wear makeup, so which is like me glam- now, but, <laughs> but then I didn't think it was very cool. So I think like glamorous was the definition was actually like polished. Yeah, polished and like my grandma like wore heels and like jewelry and beaded mm. blouses and silk scarves and fur coats and like that kind of thing. And I used to dress up in her clothes. And I loved like old movies and old Hollywood kind of thing. And I started reading magazines when I was really young. Vogue, Vanity Fair were like my Bibles from the age of like 12. I was attracted to that like beauty world and I still I still think that's like glamorous but I also know that it's not a reality Um, at that time you didn't know so you thought yeah well I don't know if I didn't know because my mom was very careful she like was anti like media women's media and like magazine she was a sex ed teacher and like a body image expert so she was Mm -hmm. like anti-dieting so I had both of these influences in my life which is good. With her influence, I was able to, and her constantly telling me, like, don't take everything that's written in magazines for what it is. Like, remember that you are valuable, not because of how you look, but because of what you do and how you think. Especially then, this was 20, well, not 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Women's media was not positive necessarily. It was like telling people to diet and like how to get a flat butt and like big lips and like whatever. There was not the same like positivity message that you get now in a lot of women's media. And I loved like the beautiful imagery and I loved the stories. I loved like reading about other people. I read a ton, um, not just magazines, books too, but... um, It's just important to remember that despite the fact that I love like beautiful things, which I still do, Mm -hmm. um, that it's not at the end of the day what makes people happy. Right. Yeah. So it seems like fashion has always been there. Yeah. Yeah. But then were you trying to deny it or? Uh, I, I loved it and I cared about it in the sense that like I ate up like all information that I could get about it. Mm -hmm. But I also like 
probably partly through my education where like the important thing was to go to university and like be successful in that kind of traditional sense. It it just like wasn't really something that I considered as a job when I was a kid. It wasn't like on the list of things that were validated by the people around me. So And so like, for example, like when I thought about fashion as a job or like writing for fashion magazines or whatever, I thought that you would like have to go to school for fashion. When I graduate, I need to figure out what I'm going to do, obviously. And in that spring of fourth year, I applied for a bunch of internships. Essentially, I talked to a lot of family, friends, and people who I admired in general who were in my life about like what they thought I should do. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And so I applied for like other journalism internships and then at a bunch of advertising agencies and flair because I had a family friend who was like, you should try. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting an interview and the guy who interviewed me, who was the assistant editor at the time, had done the same degree as me at McGill like three years Mm -hmm. before. So immediately we had a connection and that was just lucky. It wasn't because I had worked the connection or anything, like it was a lucky coincidence. We like talked about fashion in a way that, and I realized I could talk about fashion in a educated, informed way, and I ended up getting the internship. And obviously, I chose that because I was like so psyched that I could possibly work in fashion. It wasn't. It was like kind of a surprise, and I was so excited. This beautiful surprise has become a catalyst for Emily's career in fashion. Now she comes to realize that this thing she has been so passionate about and paying close attention to can finally turn into something more than just a fun hobby. Now in interning at Flair. The reality was something you imagined, like about、um, the industry, the fashion world. Was it? You mean <laughs> like? Me? I'm sorry. That's okay. Everything、really um, she wants well, to say something. Yeah, she does. She's being annoying. Like, did it live up to my imagination,、mm-hmm. or exceeded, or? Yeah,、what? I think it did. <laughs> in the sense, I don't know. It was amazing for me. I was very naive. I'd never had. A real job beyond like being a sailing instructor. I think I was really lucky because I was like one of the last cohorts of people who probably got to intern in that way. Like it was before, in they have to pay interns. Yeah, <laughs> like I was unpaid. <laughs> I worked in like a fashion closet. Like I worked in a closet with、yeah. four other people who are my age. There were aspects of it where I was exposed to like Balenciaga, and seeing that. In person for the first time, so like that was really exciting,、mm-hmm. and having the editors come in was really exciting because they seemed very glamorous, and, and that was exactly what you、yeah. imagined. Yeah, and, yeah. So and I, so in that sense, it did live up to it. I was just excited to be there, and I ended up staying there and interning for way too long, like nine months. Nine months without I, pay. How did you well, I, I it was part time, and I was working retail the other four days of the week at 
Intermix, which had, which had just opened in Toronto, mm-hmm. which is like another side of fashion. But I, well, I interned in the closet and then I became personal intern for the fashion news editor, which was great because I, I kind of like made it known that I wanted to write. Um, early on and I wrote for the website which was Mm -hmm. like bare bones in the day in those days and um, kind of put myself out there in that way I learned a lot there I learned like the ins and outs of what it takes to produce a magazine and then by the time I finished I had kind of like ingratiated myself to the fashion team there like they knew me really well the fashion director ended up hiring me as assistant on contract and I was like this is great my first paying job in the mm-hmm. industry it was like a 40-day contract <laughs> 40 Did that. Day. yeah for 40 days <laughs> quit my retail job did you yeah. Because you thought I was going to lead well, to something? Well, I don't know. It's just like, I have to take this opportunity. I right. knew that it would end after 40 days, but I just knew I had to take that opportunity. And then it ended up being that I did that 40-day contract. And then about four months later, the fashion news editor had left and I ended up getting her job. So I was very lucky. Like I hung on for probably too long, but at the same time, because I did that, it led me to my Mm -hmm. job but I don't think that was pure luck at the beginning you express your passion for writing Mm -hmm. you want to take on more of that Mm -hmm. I think that's important when do an internship because you do want to express which feel because sometimes you just when you don't know what you want to do and you don't want to you know step on anybody's toe and so I I guess like it was good that early on you already expressed your yeah anticipation for writing yeah I think that's really important. And now when I meet interns or assistants, I say, like, if there are things that you want to do above other things, like, you should be doing that. Well, there's there's two things. One, it's important to try as much as possible. And I did try some different stuff. Like, I assisted at Fashion Week, and I was very briefly modeling, and I assisted on set stylist and I did retail which gave me like a broader sense of the opportunities in fashion because it's very hard when you don't know when you haven't been in the industry what the opportunities are within it Mm -hmm. um so I do think it's important to try different things I've always kind of felt like an affinity towards writing and I love writing and I love reading and I love words when I get a magazine, I read I read it. I'm not just there for the pictures. So I knew kind of that that's what I was in, most interested in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just thought, I'm here. I might as well make it work for me. Mm-hmm. After her long internship, Emily became the assistant fashion news editor for Flair, which is a job title I've never heard of. Well... I think they had to give it to me because I was like 22 and had never had a job before. (laughs) So I needed some assistant in there, even though I was the only fashion writer on staff. So I was still doing the full job. I wasn't assisting anyone. So what were you doing? So I was really like, I was thrown into it, which was, it was probably the best learning experience I've ever had. I was writing all the fashion copy, essentially. Everything from the well copy in fashion editorials to feature profiles to fashion news at front of book to trend stories. It was a lot. Right. 
I had never written for print publishing before. I'd never written it in a polished way before. Like in the first year of my job, I saw a lot of red ink, which was, and looking back on it was incredibly valuable. I felt insecure a lot of the time about like why I was there because I didn't think that I was performing up to standards if my stuff was being edited that much, but it's honestly just the nature. And it taught me not to be precious about my writing. When Mm -hmm. it's being published, you can't be. Even though I was so young and inexperienced, like I was still one of 15 editors in Toronto at big magazines. Yeah, I, it was an amazing opportunity. I got to do things. The other amazing thing about working in media in Canada, because it's small, is when you are junior, you get to do amazing things that in the States or in the UK junior editors would never, ever, ever be allowed to do. In my first year at Flair, I went to Paris, Haute Couture, Fashion Week with Chanel, like when I was 23. That would never happen if I had been working in any other country. Um, What was it like when you were in the Chanel show? It was amazing. (laughs) I felt, I was very... I mean, I'm sure I looked like the ultimate amateur being there, but... But did you try to look as mature as possible? Yeah, Not like I mean, I tried. I think I borrowed, like, my friend's Chanel earrings, and <laughs> I don't know. I was just there. I actually remember what I wore to the show. Not a great outfit, but whatever. That's fine. It was amazing, and being there and seeing Chanel and just being in Paris was awesome and travel I mean I got to travel a lot I went to London Fashion Week and New York Fashion Week and I went to Stockholm with another thing so those kind of things were amazing perks Mm -hmm. and you get to meet amazing people right I was definitely a fish out of water a lot of the time but I don't know those experiences are so important when you're young did you like did you try to talk to anybody when you were there (laughs) I'm not a, uh, I mean, I did. I had to because I was otherwise alone. I, you'll find a lot of Canadians just come together. And when I was at Fashion Weeks, I would mostly be with Randy actually. But otherwise, it's, it's, fashion is a funny world where there are definitely cliques of people. And it's just, when you're from Canada, there's not a whole lot. It's you're very unimportant on like the world stage. Mm -hmm. So when I ended up in New York, that kind of changed things um, when I was working there. But otherwise, I mean, I pretty much kept to myself, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You meet people. Some people are really friendly. Right. (laughs) But otherwise. Some people. Well, when you work in the industry, most of the women who are at Fashion Week have been in the industry for like 25 years. And they're old hat and they see the same people every year. And they have friends in the industry, obviously, because they've been doing it for so right. long. And they're spending time with those people, which makes perfect sense. Like, I would do the same. Mm-hmm. And when you're a 23-year-old from Toronto who right. has no real idea what's going on, it's just a different thing. I did meet people that I met. A UK journalist who I still keep in touch with. And, you know, you come together with other similarly young and inexperienced people. (laughs) But it was an amazing experience because it was an adventure. Like, all Mm -hmm. of it was an adventure. It was cool to, like, be in the same show as them Mm -hmm. and, like, to think that I could be considered to be within the same profession. Like, I felt very lucky. Mm -hmm. 
I still feel lucky that I got to experience that, I think. And I think when it comes down to it, a lot of it was luck. Um, that so you, I do, got you to. do believe in luck? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard to account. I I worked hard for sure, and I tried to put myself in good positions. But when I think about like the path that my career has taken, like a lot of it is because I was in the right place at the right time. I don't think you can like discount that as being mm-hmm. one of the reasons for which things happen. You know, right. took the job at the Cavitor. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce? I always Cavitor. don't know. Cavitor. Yeah. It's a made up. I asked so many people, like <laughs> different people have a different interpretation. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think I don't that's know. the real one. Cavitor. I think I would know. Cavitor. 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 Yeah. So it was interesting because when you took the job, it seems like so many people are so happy for you, congratulate you, and then say this is the perfect match. Oh. And at that time, I didn't understand. So now I wanted to ask you. What compel you to take that job, and then what happened then? Uh, I took the job. I wanted some education and experience in digital. It just felt like I couldn't continue my career just in print and be viable. Like I could tell that things were changing. This was in it wasn't long ago. Like it was obvious even then mm-hmm. that. In order to kind of be viable as commodity, which is kind of like what you are when you're in an industry, like I needed experience in digital. And Covetour was at that point the only kind of digital only property in Toronto. And I had been in touch with them for a few months. One of their editors had left and they were in touch with me again. And it just, ended up being a good opportunity and I was ready to try online that was why really when it came down to it simple as that right yeah and how was the switch from writing for print now writing for digital um it was very different Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was so much because of the digital print divide or because of the massive media corporation to start up divide that was the biggest change what do you mean by that well flair was a part of rogers Mm -hmm. so it was part of a huge corporation and had very strict hierarchies and processes and they'd been making magazines for years Mm -hmm. and had it down like we had meetings every monday about like what was going in the book and it was drawn out and very well planned and often chaotic but it was still very well planned and then Covetour was at that point, I think, a three-year-old startup. Check that. But it was, and there were like eight people who worked there. Mm-hmm. It was tiny. And but still we pretty big could, for a Yeah. I mean, it wasn't insignificant. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they were doing a lot. Right. And they were doing really interesting things. They were doing things people had never done before mm-hmm. that are now the norm. So it allowed us to experiment. There were no mm-hmm. processes in place. There were was no structure. There was no hierarchy. It was just like figured it out. And so it was very invigorating and inspiring in that way. Did you feel um, like that was your playground? You can just kind of experiment well, things? At first, it was very intimidating because I was used to having people tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And there was no one telling me what to do. 
Um, so you're like, now what? So okay. I was like, okay, yeah. But what ended up happening and the best part about working there was that it was very collaborative among the group of people that worked there. I mean, everyone was involved in everything for better or for worse. Sometimes it wasn't very efficient, but it meant that everyone was creative. Everyone mm-hmm. was super smart. Everyone was young. Mm-hmm. Everyone wanted the company to succeed. And we all could kind of like try whatever we wanted. Everyone's opinion counted for something. So it was very exciting being there. That was the biggest change though, for sure, is that, you know, that stamp of approval from an editor, which is what I had to have working at Flair, didn't really exist there in the same way. I mean, obviously Jake and Steph, who were the co-founders, they had the last word with everything, but they were very open to what we wanted to do and for the most part it was us like kind of like pitching things and then going for it Mm -hmm. which was awesome right yeah how long did you stay uh, in Toronto for cover tour till you moved to New York with them and then I think about a year and a half okay yeah so they wanted to open an office in New York and then you took the opportunity or you were the one saying maybe I can do it um They hired a CEO who was based in New York to kind of like oversee the company, obviously, and as CEOs do. And he wanted to open an office in New York, which was smart because we were there like every other week. I wasn't there as much as Jake and Steph were, but we were all there all the time. Clients were there. Most of the subjects we were shooting were there. It just like made more sense to Mm -hmm. have an office there. They were going to hire people there anyway, but they also gave us the opportunity to move there. So everyone was given the opportunity to move. And I was able to get, because they were willing to sponsor, which was so lucky, I was able to get a visa pretty easily. And I had a lot of friends who lived there. And I was able to get a place to live pretty easily. So for me, it was like a relatively, thankfully, relatively smooth process of moving. And I moved early on. Like, I think Steph moved and then I moved. When we moved, there was no office. It was just like us trying to figure it out. But that, that happened quickly, and then it completely changed everything mm-hmm. in terms of, like, how we worked and the access that we had and the people we were able to talk to and the clients that we were able to work with. Like, that all changed very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, that you sounded... Do you think she needs to know? Stevie, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Switch gear from yeah. Flair to the cover tour in Toronto. It was more, like, open to your experiment and playing and just uh, trying different things but now moving to new york is even more a white canvas for you to um yes like start from there yes and no because the thing with new york and part of the reason i mean the biggest reason that i think we needed to be there was because like the industry exists there in like a real way Mm mm-hmm not that Tranos isn't real, but Covator was never really in the Canadian industry. They were more like international and they were trying to participate in New York, New York not being in New York. Yeah. <laughs> there was like a new playground to be in, but it like existed already. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like we were the only ones doing it, which is what it was in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So, And then being from print to digital, you have all these like constant feedback from the, the readers mm-hmm. and then even the customers, then how you make sure that the content is not being, you know, um, determined by the feedback? Uh, well, Covertour has a very specific, I think one of its like greatest assets, honestly, is that 
it has a very specific point of view and tone mm-hmm. and visual vocabulary. I mean, you can look at a lot of the pictures and know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they've been right to hang on to because it separates Covetour from the rest of the internet. So in that sense, holding on to that like point of view means that you have the flexibility to try different types of content and listen to readers if they want more beauty or wellness or travel or mm-hmm. whatever. We can do that if it's from that point of view. Um, so still stay core to the vision. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think that's an ultimate struggle a lot of uh, digital yeah. magazines are I facing. Think, I think it is. I think every digital publication is dealing with like constantly trying to do what readers want them to do. I think the most success comes from when you have a very clear point of view and people come to you for that, not because you're spoon-feeding them what exactly what they want, but because you have something that they can only come to you for mm-hmm. i think that's why like the closet the coveture closet is still such like a precious thing because mm-hmm. they're the only people who do that right. that way really well and how did you manage to kind of reconcile the concept of uh reporting fashion and beauty but not being too materialism mm-hmm. um kind of finding that delicate balance between fashion and intellectual content yeah it was, it's interesting because when we were in people's homes and going through their stuff, which is like a very intimate activity, you're literally like in their closet looking through their handbags. Of course, you're excited if you like come across like a treasure trove of like Birkins or Chanel. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. It's fun to see. And right. fashion is fun. And often it's beautiful. And most of the people that we were profiling had like amazing collections of beautiful things. And that's really fun. And fashion should be fun. But the best part of doing those was the emotional connection that people have to their clothes. And I think it's like any kind of cultural exchange. It's like music or movies or food where you can kind of relate to people through that, Mm -hmm. to different people, to all sorts of different people from different countries, because it's something that everyone understands and feels some emotional attachment to. So, for example, asking someone about a handbag isn't really about the handbag. It's about the stories that they associate with the handbag, whether that's like a night they brought it out or because it was given to them by their husband or because it was what they carried to their prom. Like there's lots of different ways in which you can like get into someone's psyche through clothes through anything like that like we started doing it with people's kitchens we started doing it with their beauty cabinets it's Mm -hmm. what you have even though it's just stuff means something to the person and that's the Mm -hmm. interesting part i think it's why personal expression can be had through fashion Mm -hmm. so that was the best part of the story because most of the time, the people, they weren't just collectors of beautiful things. They were very interesting people aside from that. And right. it's a very specific way of profiling them, which is the genius of it. Yeah, that was a really good idea. I think everybody was such was, a good idea. I know yeah. the smartest idea ever. I know they were really on it with that. Yeah. Right at the time when everyone wanted to see into people's lives. Right. Just before Instagram took hold. There was everyone that I was disappointed by because every person was very unique. There was always something special or weird or interesting. Right. And even if they had the simplest style, there was like an 
it was thoughtful. So how long did you stay in New York for? Almost two years. And why did you move back? (laughs) (laughs) I, I think the thing about writing online every day for a publication is that you end up feeling like you're repeating yourself. And it's just like the nature of it. I think that happens no matter where you're working. And when you're writing and producing creatively and you need to, that's the most important part of the job, then it's hard to kind of stay, feel like you're doing a good job if you always feel like you're repeating yourself. And by the end of three and a half years, I just felt like I had kind of exhausted that side of myself and Mm -hmm. that it's like, okay, like I've done this, feels great. I didn't leave in like a bad way. I was just ready to try something else. Yeah, so that was the main impetus. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't New York. New York was great. To be completely honest, I like living in Toronto more. But a lot of that's probably due to the fact that like my boyfriend was here and I wanted to live with him again. And so when you were in New York, your boyfriend was here. Mm -hmm. So So you moved back and then I moved back. Started freelancing. Yeah. How did that go? Um, it went pretty well. I was very lucky because, as I say, when I left Couture, it was on great terms. We negotiated like a retainer where I was doing a certain number of stories for them a month. So I had that as steady work, mm-hmm. kind of continuing on similarly, but with the freedom to do other stuff. And the work that I ended up getting, I mean, I did do some editorial stuff, but most of the work that I ended up getting was with brands, which I was surprised by. I didn't really know what it was going to look like in terms of what I would be doing, but a lot of the people who wanted to work with me were brands who wanted kind of an editorial point of view or advice on their brand identity, which was exciting for me because I had never expected that. Mm -hmm. And it's been really fun to kind of do something else. I mean, as I say, the reason that I wanted to go freelance was to do different things. And it, it has been that. In the interview, Emily was asked where would she see herself in five years. That interview took place in 2013, so it's been exactly five years since then. I was wondering if what she anticipated then would actually match up her current situation. So I read her answer to her. There are a million things I like to be doing in five years, and I just can't pick one. I suppose in an ideal world, I would still be writing or perhaps doing something in the broader media scape of beyond print. So I'm good at not answering questions. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of interesting. Like, yeah. So that kind of lead to Bumble now, right? Mm. I'm technically still freelance. Okay. But yeah, Bumble is my biggest client, pretty much my only client. I'm their Canadian lead. Uh, we'd written about them like when they first launched for the Covertura. And I'm trying to think of how it happened. They were in touch because they were interested in content, which obviously is my bread and butter. And I had written a lot of kind of feminist profiles on women in the workforce and in tech in mm-hmm. the last like year of being at the Covertura. And it had been become something that I was really passionate about. And they wanted stuff like that. So we were talking about that. They ended up hiring 
a content team, which is great. So they didn't need someone in Toronto. And then eventually wanted someone full-time or at least fully focused on Canada as a market. And I sent a proposal and it happened. I have Covetour and Flair to thank for like a lot of the opportunities that I've had since leaving and being freelance because most of the people that I've worked with, I worked with in some sense at both of those places. One of my clients was someone that I profiled like four years ago for Flair. Mm -hmm. And they come back because they're looking for something that I can do, which is really amazing. It's really nice to have that network Mm -hmm. and so valuable. Um, But yeah, that's how Bumble happened. That's how every project that I've had Mm -hmm. has happened, essentially. Right. So you talk about you already, you still have something going on when you move back from New York. Because of that, you were very uh, fearful of like diving into the freelancing world. What was, um, what was your expectation what, what at was, the time? Yeah, uh, I wasn't fearful. I knew it was risky. I think probably people around me were more nervous than I was. For some, I didn't feel that as nervous. And I mean, it's, it is a scary thing. Like, especially, I mean, I have been employed since essentially I graduated from university. Like I haven't not worked for someone and mm-hmm. had a job. Um, so this was an entirely new and different thing. But I felt like I was in a place where I had built up enough contacts and it was a new challenge where I had to push myself in a new way, which I think I needed at that time. I was like very comfortable at Cavatour and I wanted something that was like new and exciting and it felt like this was the right thing. But mm-hmm. Part of me wants to be done with like being unsure all the time, which is I feel like my entire 20s have been that. Mm -hmm. But um, I also obviously love the freedom and the like irresponsibility of being young. (laughs) So (laughs) who doesn't? Yeah. (laughs) I know I am someone who is constantly and this is a good thing and a bad thing, but who is constantly like looking forward, like looking for the next thing whether that's just like being excited about summer or (laughs) thinking like, what am I going to be doing in the next five years? Like I'm just always like things are going to be more exciting then. And I've always been like that since I was a kid, Mm -hmm. Um, which is good because it moves me forward. But it's also like one of those things where it's hard for me to be in the present and just be like happy with what it is now. And I'm trying to be better at that because I feel pretty good about where I am now. Um, I'm actually really resonating with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty common. But I mean, my mom even told me when I was a kid, like, don't base your happiness off of like what's happening in a month. Like, Right. But what is happiness, though? I don't even think that's a thing that I feel like it's so such a temporal thing. Yeah, it is. A lot of people think that's going to be the destination. No, you're right. And uh, and I mean, feeling happy Mm -hmm. is like a thing that you experience occasionally and it's great, but it's not like a constant state of being, Mm -hmm. which is okay. That's fine. But I think like being present and feeling satisfied or content, I guess, are better words, is nice Mm -hmm. if you can like catch those moments. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I don't know if I'm like the best at doing that. So what keeps you going every day? (laughs) Uh, Like practically or in my head? Anything. (laughs) Anything. Um... 
What keeps me going? Or、oh, waking up in the morning, getting excited about? Ah,、uh, being creative is really important to me. Collaborating with people who I think are smart and interesting is amazing.、Um, that's like the most fun part of any job that I do. But important to note, I think, is that there are things outside of my work that also make me feel fulfilled and content and happy, if I want to call it that.、Mm-hmm. That I think are just as important to living a full life. I think if we only have work or only have a single relationship or a dog, and that's the only thing that makes you feel fulfilled, then you're bound to be disappointed. So to not forget those other areas of your life, and that. Like even though work takes up so much of it and is often the thing that I like lie awake thinking about, it's important to like realize that these other things also like、mm. fulfill you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Okay.、Um, now I'm just like few like, rapid fire questions I asked at the end. Okay. Yeah, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> Why? It's so much fun. Okay. So, what was the last dream you had that you could remember? Oh God, last dream. Hmm. I have really weird dreams, I think, but I never remember them. I remember them for like the split second when I wake up. They're always really vivid, and I I have dreams where I don't know if I'm dreaming or if I'm awake. And then when I realize that I'm dreaming, I can tell myself to wake up, and then、mm. I can wake up and then go back into it.、It's、really? really yeah. They're always like adventures. Like I'm on an adventure, and I have to run away and fight people and like do and very outside of my life. Like、yeah. they're not, they're not within any realm of <laughs> of what's happening in reality. Cool. <laughs> you, <laughs> that sounds really cool. <laughs> Fighting people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know.、Um, your ultimate favorite film. Um,、uh, uh, the one I have to go back to that I feel the most attachment to is Singing in the Rain, which、mm-hmm. was like my first favorite ever. Um, I still love it. What's something weird about you? Not that many people know about. I think the weirdest thing is every year for my birthday I have the same meal, and it is、uh, my dad's family is Norwegian, and it's a Norwegian weird meal. But it's、uh, white bread <laughs> with mayonnaise on it and cold shrimp, on, and that's it. An、really? open face sandwich. And you love it? Yeah, I love it. It's very weird. I have weird food tastes, but. I'm into that. And these,、uh, these following questions I ask, that's weird, but it's like、um, a scenario: aliens and robots are taking over the world. Okay. And then they're gonna like brainwash everybody. And but okay, I have、yeah. one mercy that you can remember three memories. Like keep that、oh, to you. Three memories. Oh my god. Ah,、uh, three memories. It's really hard to think of specifics, but. They would probably circulate around、uh, groups of people that are extremely important to me. So, my girlfriends I've known for years, and we've had like many evenings together and life moments together, cottage weekends and stuff like that. And just they know me very well. My family traveling with them probably, with my dad and mom and brother probably being. My parents live on a boat, so sailing with them probably, and then with my boyfriend, just life, small life things, and like the little things, not not like the big fancy things, but the little moments are like probably 
the most important memories. What comes to your head right now? Like cooking together, simple stuff, listening to podcasts while driving, walking our dog together, like all those like very boring domestic <laughs> moments. You know, you can only remember three, right? <laughs> I know, I know, but I mean, sorry, that was a terrible answer to a rapid fire question. That's okay.、Uh, <laughs> now it's the same scenario, but instead of the three memories,、uh, three truths. I thought about this one because I knew you were gonna ask it, but I only <laughs> thought of one. <laughs> well, now you have so, to. So we're gonna have to go. I'm gonna muddle through the second and third, but the first, the one that I thought of that I think is the most important is that the saying is that no man is an island, but I think that that is just very true. We are nothing without the people around us and the people who have influenced us. Everyone that I've like come across, you know. Has influenced me in different ways, and、mm-hmm. that's really important. At the end of the day, it's like your relationships that make you who you are. Whether that's like very important relationships, like with your best friends and your partner and your family, or smaller relationships, like encountering an Uber driver or something,、mm-hmm. like those things are very important. Oh God! The second is just like the importance of perspective and being aware of your own perspective and being aware that everyone else has a different perspective. On that same note, having a perspective when it comes to the things that you worry about or that seem like a big deal in the moment that probably won't matter, like in a day, let、mm-hmm. alone a year. So that's one. The third one, truth. Not everyone is like a networker necessarily, naturally, or a very outgoing person, or the kind of person that introduces themselves to someone out of the blue. I'm certainly not that person, but if you are kind and thoughtful and you work hard, then things will come back to you in good ways. And not to burn bridges because you never know who you'll need to or be in touch with years later. I've been in touch with people who I never thought I would see again years later. Old interns, old bosses, old like it's crazy how the world works. So,、yeah. remembering that just kindness pays off, and that can be just as powerful as working your network. I don't know. That <laughs> that seems like a very surface truth, but that that's what came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. It's practical.、Um, My last question is: What are you currently seeking? Oh, I think I'm just seeking the confidence to make all these myriad projects and things that I'm working on work. A lot of things I'm doing right now, I'm doing for the first time ever, and I feel very excited about them. And I just want it all to work. Really badly, and so just like keeping that, holding on to that, like confidence that I think I know that I can. It's just like holding on to it and remembering that, like I'm good. I've I've done weird things before, and I can do them again. And I've been d- uncomfortable before, and I can be uncomfortable again. So just like remembering that confidence.、Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Emily.、Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'm so. This has been so nice. I never talk about myself this much, but I love it. <laughs> Are you an introvert? Do you think?、Um, I think I'm a mix because I love spending time with people. It's really important. And if I don't spend time with people, I get really sad. Right. But I need my alone time, and I really value that.、Right. And I really value like just not talking. 
Right. Even though I'm an introvert, sometimes I love being the center of attention, so I'm happy to do this. <laughs> I, will, I will readily admit that I like being the center of attention. That's so great. I'm fine with it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay. I think we're done. Okay, thank you. Thank this you. Is so nice. Thank you so much for listening. It would really make my day if you could head to your Apple Podcast app to subscribe and leave us a review. It only takes about ten seconds, and it will really go a long way. If you prefer to listen on Spotify, we're also available there now. And as always, the photos from our home visit are now on DearSeekers.com. If you love Instagram, find us there at DearSeekers, and feel free to DM me if you have any feedback or questions. Okay, so see you in two weeks. Until then, happy seeking.